abrupt ending to the intro. What's going on? It's the John Cast Podcast. We are on episode number. Let me see. I forget sometimes. 55. Episode number 55. Hey, a big shout out to everyone who attended last night for my fundraising, my live podcast at me and Julio. I had Dana Redke out there of the Wisconsin volleyball team, and we raised over $1,200 for Journey Mental Health Center of Madison. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Thank you once again. Everybody came out, bid on the silent auction items. We'll have uh, hopefully another podcast party sometime. I think that would be uh, a ton of fun and, and get more uh, people out. And um, everybody who had the Badgeritas and me and Julio was fantastic. And you should go check out me and Julio. It is, when we're recording this, it's Thursday. So they got their $4 classic margaritas at me and Julio. Also brought to you by Ian's Pizza in Madison. Hey, don't sleep on Ian's. They had the uh, brisket and tot pizza I saw on their Instagram the other day. And I just, I wanted to just hop in the car and just drive to Ian's Pizza and go, go get some of that. Um, but Ian's Pizza and uh, this podcast, we're working on our next promotion. And also johncastpodcast.com if you want any of my Wisconsin sports-themed t-shirts. You can just go there and uh, go pick one up. But I'm pretty excited about today's podcast because my guest this episode is a former All-American offensive lineman for the University of Wisconsin. He played 11 Hall of Fame seasons with the Cleveland Browns, has an unofficial NFL record with 10,363 consecutive snaps. I don't. That doesn't even make sense to me. And currently spends his time as an analyst for the NFL Network. Also, he is uh, part of Mission Barbecue on Madison's East Side. So go check out Mission Barbecue as well. Welcome to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen, Joe Thomas. What's going on, Joe? Not much, man. How are you? I'm so excited to be here today. Oh, I'm so excited to have you, man. I'm so glad you could uh, make this work and get this in yeah. your schedule because you are a, a a busy guy. I mean, tell me a little bit about what's uh, on your plate, maybe with Mission mm -hmm. Barbecue, but what's been on your plate now over the last couple of months? What's keeping you busy? Yeah, so I work for NFL Network, and uh, the NFL season has kind of wrapped up, at least the NFL offseason with the draft uh, a few weeks ago, and that's really kept me pretty busy through the spring. As you know, the NFL just dominates the sports calendar no matter what season it is uh and they do a pretty good job of uh, capturing my time as well uh as an analyst <laughs> which is which is great because i absolutely love being involved with the nfl still even though i'm now done playing and um yeah. it's great to still have my foot in the door just a little bit to be able to talk about football and to be able to just absorb all that information every single day um but outside of that just being a father for four kids, I've got uh, three girls and a boy, and awesome. we live in Madison. And um, as any parent will tell you, four kids take up a lot of your time. And uh, <laughs> I try to be present as much as I possibly can, especially yeah. after 11 years of the NFL um, life, which is not exactly conducive to being around and uh, being a, a great father. Yeah, that's crazy. I have one child. She's nine. Uh, and I, I, I sometimes like one of my buddies has like three boys and you have four children. I don't even know. Like, how do you even, like, how do you even function? I honestly, I yeah. don't get it. Like, how does that It happen? was funny, you know, for like six years in the NFL, I didn't even have a calendar. Right. Because every day was like, oh, I just wake up and do football things at the, at the <laughs> office. Right. I could yeah. go drive to Bree, Ohio and football all day, come home, eat dinner and watch some TV, go to bed. Like there was no need for a calendar because I didn't have things. And now our calendar between me and my wife and our kids is like so detailed. We're like the German army in World War One. Like everything happens, not to the minute, to literally the second. And if there's any like wrench that gets thrown in the cog, everything downstream gets totally screwed up, which that means we're just 
overbooked. I think that's really the moral of this story is I got to do less things because yeah. uh, it would be much more fun to like wake up one day and be like, Hey, I wonder what I'm going to do today. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Well, I guess we'll just find out. We'll see what happens. And, and you know what would happen to like, if you ever did that, then eventually you'd be like, Oh man, now I'm bored. Yeah, I'd be uh, so bored by like noon. I'd be like, dang, I'm so bored. I just want to take a nap because I just can't imagine not doing anything all day. Like I, I feel like I need to be productive and like get into my recovery cycle by sleeping. <laughs> right. Um, 10,363 consecutive snaps. That is insane. What made you so durable during your NFL career? How did you do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think honestly, uh, the big factor in that was like just having good DNA, right? Like I was a guy that even in high school sports, I never got hurt. I, I'd never missed a start in football from seventh grade until my 11th season in the NFL when I tore my uh, tricep tendon. Um, and so just having I, I, whatever that durability gene is that are some people have it and some people yeah. don't. And so I think that was a big part of it. But also, I, I really was pretty diligent with trying to take care of my body. I was big into yoga. Um, I thought that was really good for kind of connecting your mind and your muscle and being ahead of the curve when you could feel that maybe an injury was coming. I was really good at being able to get into the training room, getting the rehab and the prehab that I needed to try to prevent those injuries. But also, I think just having that awareness on the football field, um, understanding like where the play was designed to go, where the potential issues were when guys were getting tackled. Like if you're on the front side of a zone play, I knew to keep your feet running and make sure that you're not turning your butt in the hole because there's going to be dudes trying to tackle our running back from the other side and they were probably going to land on my legs. And so uh, most leg lower body injuries in the NFL for linemen at least happen when you're getting tackled and your feet are just planted in the ground. So just finishing your block, doing little things like that throughout the game, I think, kept me from being injured um, throughout my career, probably more than most guys. But there was also a pretty healthy dose of good luck, right? When right. you think about yeah. reasons that people miss a snap, like, okay, injury, obviously, like illness, fatigue, right? Like ineffectiveness, yeah. but also like silly stuff, like breaking a shoelace. Like there'd been times where I broke a shoelace, but I was able to quickly have somebody kind of help like tie it back together or like, you know, your chin strap falls off or your helmet breaks or some goofy thing like that happens and you have to come out for a play. But I was really fortunate that I never had to deal with any of that stuff. So definitely luck was on my side to be able to set that record. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Uh, all, everything that kind of goes into that. And you mentioned like yoga. So one of the things I was, I was wondering too, like what were, some of the things that maybe as fans, we don't know that a player does. Cause you know, we know you practice, we know you work out and we know you play on Sundays. Um, but were there other things that you did as a player that to help your game um, that the average fan maybe wouldn't mm -hmm. know about? Like, I think that yoga, I, I, I guess I never yeah. really realized that, that you would have been doing yoga yeah. during your NFL career. Mm -hmm. I, I was huge on yoga. I, I thought it was really good for improving my mobility, but even more than that, just like the mindfulness aspect, I think was really strong and really important. Um, and it helped me learn what it felt like to make sure my muscles were individually firing. I think as a young player, as a young kid, like you just go hard. Like you just don't know any better. Like, oh, just go block that guy. Just run hard. Like, but actually slowing things down and feeling those individual muscles contract and understanding like when some of them aren't contracting, I think is really important. And also being able to get into those positions and, and feeling the biomechanical leverage that you're trying to create to create force in the ground and to move your opponent or to move your body. 
I think it's really powerful to have that mind muscle connection and understand like all the muscles that are trying to be firing at each time to make sure that they're firing effectively. But um, outside of that, I was kind of um, a slave to my routine as far as like ice tub every day, hot and cold contrast. I did sauna during the week on Mondays. Usually uh, I did a massage every Friday to try to help my body recover for the weekends. Um, and then I also did a cryogenic chamber after the game. So um, wow. we had yeah. a, a huge shipping crate that came from Poland. It was actually the first one in North America. And they turned the entire shipping crate into a cryogenic chamber that went down to like a hundred minus 120 Celsius. Oh, uh, it was really, really cold. And so you go in there for like three minutes. You basically, your body thinks that you're dying. So it releases all these hormones to try to save your life. And it just so happens that those hormones that it releases are all really good at getting your body quickly into the recovery mode and helping reduce the soreness for the next day and helping also reduce the fatigue on your central nervous system. And so I was actually one of a few guys that after our plane would land on Sunday night from wherever our road game was, I, instead of going home right away, I would yeah. actually, in my suit and tie still, I would drive to the facility where the cryogenic chamber was. And I would get my cryotherapy that night right after the game because I felt so much better the next day. And I felt it sped my recovery up by at least 24 to 48 hours. Wow. Uh, and really, you know, towards the end of my career, that was one of the big things is because as you get old, like you're pretty sore still Friday and Saturday. You're almost sore like going into the game, which is not what happened when you were a kid. So any little recovery tricks that you could have were huge in being able to allow you to get ready to play the next Sunday. Yeah, cryotherapy, man. I've never done that. Obviously, I've heard about it and how cold it gets. That that's intense, man. I, I like the way you describe it, though. Your body thinks you're dying, and it releases. <laughs> it helps you yeah. in the long run. But all those mm -hmm. things you did—the yoga, the the cryotherapy, the sauna—and you're still sore. I mean, do you ever uh, during that time did you ever say like, man, if I didn't do this, I don't even know if I could like get out of bed. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's hard enough getting out of bed, even when you do all that stuff towards yeah. the end of your career. Um, and I just, I'll never forget like the way your body felt going into training camp. And the joke was the first day of training camp was this is the best you're going to feel for six months because it was true. Like you just get sore and you don't stop being sore and feeling like you just got into a car accident until the season's over. And then it takes a couple weeks and then you start feeling a little bit better. And then you can just sort of imagine going through that once again. But the day that season's over, like you can't even imagine going through that amount of pain on a oh. daily basis for another six months. Yeah. Um, all right. So what was your favorite thing about playing in the NFL? What was, what was your favorite aspect of, of being an NFL pro player? Yeah, I think the thing that brings people back and the reason you see guys like Tom Brady retire and then unretire and Brett Favre retire and then unretire and now maybe Drew Brees doing that mm -hmm. is because the feeling that you get on Sunday when you're working together with a bunch of brothers that you spend way more time with them than you do your family during the season. So these are these are like family, right? And you're working together to achieve a goal that's bigger than yourself. And you're doing it in front of 80,000 screaming fans either for you or 80,000 people that are heckling you and are against you. And actually sometimes I kind of enjoyed playing on the road even a little bit more. It gave me more energy because it felt like you were the Spartans or you were the gladiators that were in the stadium and everyone was cheering for you to get eaten by the lions. And it was just you and those other 52 guys that were with you. And it was just such an amazing feeling that you really can't capture that level of emotion in any other walk of life. 
Um, and I think it's that's definitely the most exciting, the most fun, and also the thing that you miss the most about playing in the NFL. Uh, you did mention Tom Brady there during that answer, and he was in the news recently signing a $375 million 10-year <laughs> contract with Fox, which is just mm. – that's that's more than some – this is a Major League Baseball contract, basically. Mm. That's a, mm -hmm. uh, an enormous amount of money. Um, so is Tom Brady worth $375 million as a broadcaster? It's such a funny story to me because – it's actually more money than he's made in his entire NFL career as the greatest <laughs> NFL player of all time. And certainly he made a lot of money for the Patriots, uh, but they didn't think he was worth that much playing football. Um, and so as a color analyst, like if you're just separating this as a color analyst, or if you're just isolating this as a color analyst contract, no, he's, he's not even worth 3 million a year as far as the additional eyeballs that are going to watch him doing a game versus you know, a generic person doing the game, right? We don't, first of all, we don't even know if he's going to be any good at being a color analyst because all the media stuff that I've seen from him, he had a podcast, he had like a radio show and he's done um, the man in the arena. He's done a lot of things, but yeah. they were interesting. I wouldn't say they were exactly all that entertaining. Like he's not an entertainer thus far. Um, I know there's a lot of people in his life that, that I'm like mutually friends with that say, Hey, he's really funny in private. And you know, he's a great guy and all these things. And I'm like, okay, but like, making that transition from great football player and nice guy and, and funny off the field to being a great entertainer who can captivate an audience in a 20 second window with great stories and great insight and great analysis. That's a big leap. And, the, and there's a lot of unknowns. So there's a huge risk, but I call this like the, he's the, he's the man trophy wife for Fox is basically <laughs> yes. what he's being paid for. Because we, so if you, if you isolate as a color analyst it's clearly not worth that much money, like nobody is like right. even Kirk Herbstreet and Troy Aikman and Chris Collinsworth, those are the best guys in the business. They're not even worth half of that. It's Tony Romo will throw them in there. They're not, they're not worth half that. And they're not even getting paid close to that. But for Tom Brady, I think what this comes down to is for Fox is he's going to be the trump card that comes into the room when they're negotiating the big contracts with the different leagues that they're doing and or that they're involved with and the different companies that they're involved with and he's the guy that's going to hopefully seal those big billion dollar deals in Fox's favor and so from that standpoint he's he's a, he's valuable to their company to be in that room when those big deals happen but also I think there is a little bit of ego at play for the Murdochs and the people that are running Fox is like Hey, we got Tom Brady with us. Like, we're going to take him to the Kentucky Derby with us. And, you know, he just becomes like a really expensive boy toy that they're just going to be tagging along with him, you know, wherever they go as a little status symbol. So maybe I, I, it's good for everybody. It's a win-win. Yeah. And, and when you said that, and uh, I, I had a podcast with Kurt Benkert, uh, a Packers quarterback, and, and he said kind of the same thing. And it got me thinking because I think as fans, we see that story and we go, three, like you're saying, 375 for just doing game. It's not just no. for doing games it's much there's a bigger picture here mm -hmm. and i think that's once you realize that it's like you said the boy toy for fox like yeah. it's it makes a lot more sense now mm -hmm. you also uh, i was listening to your podcast and you were talking about tony romo and you know the way romo predicts everything we don't know how brady's going to be mm -hmm. as a color analyst yeah. and i thought you said something really interesting you were talking about you know uh, as far as predicting plays when you've been in the league for so long, you know, I think you gave the example of like a goal line. Like there's only a few 
different options you could go with. And, and as a former player, you can identify that pretty quickly. Can you talk a little bit more, explain that and what you meant about like the way Romo and probably yourself when you're sitting at home or working for the NFL network, watching a game can, can kind of see that develop because you have that background as a player. Yeah. So quarterbacks, obviously they see the big picture a lot more than a guy like me as, as a lineman, right? Cause they're always looking at the defense They're They're thinking like an offensive coordinator, right? And in offensive football, there's situational offense on the field when you're in key areas a lot of times. There's a certain menu of plays that every team runs. Now, of course, there's creative plays and there's concepts that are new and unique, but for the most part, like the core concepts are pretty similar. So like if you're backed up uh, with your back against your own goal line, like the first thing a lot of teams do, right, is a quarterback sneak, right? Then they get there, then it's a direct run because you don't want to take the risk of running outside or sideline to sideline and giving up a safety. Um, and then there's like quick passes, which is like a full back into the flat. Or then there's your take a shot option, right? Which is like your sluggo concepts, which is a slant and go. So you make the defense think you're throwing a short pass. And then you're hoping that they bite on it to try to take a risk. And then you go deep, right? Okay, that's just one example. But now if you're in a third and short situation, right? And you have a personnel in the field, um, you've got like an 11 personnel, which is one back, one tight end on the field. And one of the favorite plays by everybody is um, sprint right option is what it's called. Basically, it's an option route and you're trying to get man coverage. And so you'll send somebody in motion and then you've got your option route and then you've got another route that's going up the field that's trying to rub for him. And it's just an easy like two yard pass. Your offensive line is running to the right. Your quarterback's running to the right. So they're all moving in the same direction. And it's kind of a one read throw and it's pretty easy. Everybody runs it. And when you have that formation in there, of course you can run, there's a couple things you can run off of it, but the menu becomes very small. And so when you're a color analyst, you go to practice on Friday and you watch all those situational plays because every team goes over those situations. And so you have a pretty good idea when you're watching um, a practice on Friday and with your knowledge of all those situations going into the game, that when you see that personnel grouping on the field and you see that formation that you just saw on Friday, you kind of know what play they're going to be running. Um, and that's why... A guy like Tom Brady, who's going to be sitting in those Friday meetings and watching those Friday practices, sometimes make the other coaches a little bit nervous, right? Because now he has information. He has the answers to the test going in on Sunday. And if a team, let's say, is playing the Patriots or the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or some team that Brady has a lot of relationships with, they're going to be a little bit guarded with some of that information because they're nervous that he can now use that information to go and tell the other team's coach if he wanted to. And then they would have a little bit of a head start and potentially they would know what play or at least by the formation and the personnel grouping that came in the game, possibly what play they'd be running in those situations. And so that's what uh, the Patriots got in trouble for a little bit with Spygate. If you remember, you know, two decades ago or whatever, they were, they actually had, I think some equipment guys or somebody filming those Friday practices, just like the, uh, announcing team gets to watch mm -hmm. and then they were able to see a bunch of their play concepts they were able to see their first 15 plays of the game that everybody walks through on that friday and that saturday practice um and so that information well it's very valuable it also provides a lot of value to the announcing team because then they're able to see a lot of what that team is going to try to run and focus on that weekend Hmm, interesting. Um, you being a former Cleveland Browns uh, player, you, you suggested a trade recently on Twitter. You said Baker <laughs> Mayfield for Jordan Love. But if both sides were willing, 
Um, why did that make sense to you? And, and does it make sense in real life? Yeah, one thing I like to do on Twitter is just throw a bunch of stuff up against the wall because certainly, like even sometimes if you're joking, people always uh, lose the humor aspect on Twitter. And uh, you get some people that like to, you know, jump in there and, and make good laughs about it. And some people are like, oh, you're the biggest idiot in the world. But um, I was actually just spitballing in that situation because the Browns are really struggling to find a trade partner for Baker Mayfield. And the bridge between him and the Browns has been burned almost um beyond repair at this point and the Browns potentially depending on how long Deshaun Watson's suspension is they may need a quarterback and obviously Baker's a good enough quarterback he'd probably be the best next option on that roster to play quarterback for the Browns but they can't get him to play because he hates them and they, well, let's say they don't really love him very much so my thought was hey the Packers, let, let's if you could somehow figure out the contract, the Packers would love to have Baker because he'd be an upgrade over Jordan as the backup. And hey, maybe down the line you like what you see and you could sign him to a long-term contract when Aaron's gone and he could take over, you know, best case scenario. And for the Browns, Baker won't play for him. So clearly you have to get rid of him. And so why not bring Jordan Love in? You know, you could somehow find a way to make it work. And if he becomes a good backup for him, hey, great. You know, he becomes a great option to play a few games because he might be a better option than Jacoby Brissett or anybody else that they have uh, on the roster. So it's one of those things where it doesn't seem like either side like the quarterback as a backup that they currently have. And if you just did a swap, both teams would be better off. But yeah. obviously the contract situation is a, a big problem because Baker's owed 18.8 million. So they would have to figure that out uh, if they ever wanted to do something like that. And I don't think the GMs have seriously talked about that, but no, <laughs> but okay. So Deshaun Watson, obviously about. whenever he gets uh, into uh, Cleveland is able to play, um, is he the right choice for the Browns? How, how did you view that? Um, decision. Yeah, it's one of those ones where you still don't know how to feel about it. Obviously, Deshaun Watson as a quarterback, uh, one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. He's a tier one quarterback that can get you to the Super Bowl every single season. And that's what every NFL team is looking for right now. Um, and I think most teams are realizing that like what was good enough maybe 15, 20 years ago to get you a Super Bowl is not good enough anymore. Uh, you think about the days when Trent Dilfer and Joe Flacco and um, guys like that were winning Super Bowls. Um, they had amazing defenses and a really good team around them. And you could win because the style of play in the NFL was a lot different. Defense was important. Teams ran the football. Um, you didn't have these quarterbacks throwing for 380 yards and four touchdowns every single weekend. You didn't have guys playing flawless football at the quarterback position like Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes. Um, and so you could, you could have a good quarterback and then build around him. But that's just not the case anymore. The quarterback, especially because of uh, the offensive or excuse me, the rule changes that have benefited the offense, especially the pass interference. Mm -hmm. Like if you want to be a team that can compete in the playoffs and make a run, you have to have a dynamic playmaker at quarterback. Teams don't win with defense anymore. You can't keep a good enough defense together because guys are getting paid so much on those defenses. You have to have 11 great players. It's like uh, links in a chain. You can't have one weakness on your defense or you're screwed. Whereas you have one great quarterback, uh, like we've seen from a lot of teams, like doesn't necessarily matter as much who you've put around him because he can throw the football where no defense can defend. And he can make those decisions and get you into the right place consistently so you can move the ball and win. And so I, I think when teams finally are realizing that, which is, seems to be right now. And that's why the Browns made the decision to trade for 
Deshaun Watson and move away from Baker Mayfield, who's a good quarterback. He's just not good enough to consistently get you to the Super Bowl. So uh, that's why they made that move. And from a football standpoint, like I mentioned, it makes total sense. Obviously, there's the um, off the field issues with the sexual assault allegations that are still ongoing. And, you know, as, as a fan, like, I want to wait to see what happens with all this stuff. You know, the NFL is still working on their investigation, but it does give you that uneasy feeling because you don't know how to feel about it as a, as a fan. You want to cheer for your team. You want to be excited about this new quarterback. Um, but the baggage that he brings with him uh, makes you really, really, really at uncomfortable at best. Yeah. Uh, what about the Green Bay Packers? What do the Packers need to do to go deeper in the postseason? Is there any position or position group they need more from? Or is this the case where Aaron Rodgers is a future Hall of Famer, obviously. The Packers are a really great team, and not all great teams with Hall of Famers win championships. You know, is How do you view the Packers? Well, football's tough because our playoffs is unlike any other playoff systems where it's one game and that's it. There's no seven-game series. There's no five-game series. It's a one-game playoff each week. And... So when you look at probability and statistics, you're playing against other really, really good teams. And, you know, more than any other Sunday, you know, people like to say any given Sunday, any team can win in the regular season. Well, it's especially true in the playoffs because these teams are actually really equal. And you could have great teams with quarterbacks like Brett Favre, but you can just be a little bit unlucky at times. And all it takes is one unlucky play or a couple unlucky plays in a game and your season's over. Um, so I think that's what happened to them last year. I, I really thought they had a great chance to win the Super Bowl, and I, I think they were probably a better team than the Rams when all was said and done. But you have a bad uh, day on special teams, or you get a punk blocked, and then all of a sudden it's over. Like Aaron doesn't play his absolute best football, and you lose the game. So I, I think that they definitely want to try to improve. Everybody wants to get better. And I think losing Devontae Adams hurt him. They were able to replace him in the draft. I, I like what they did in the second round where Brian Goodikens moved up uh, and drafted a, a good receiver. But um, I think they're going into the season saying, hey, we need to improve our defense. They were good defense, but they, they spent a lot of resources on defense this offseason. Um, and they're hoping that, you know, the ball just bounces in their direction in the playoffs. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't bet against them. When Aaron Rodgers is your quarterback – you've got a chance to win the Super Bowl every single season. Uh, you know, Joe, in the background there, you've got a great background. you got a uh, fish <laughs> mounted there. you got some turf there. And I see the Wisconsin W, which gets me thinking oh, yeah. about your, your time as a Badger. Um, what is the greatest piece of advice you've ever – there it is. Yep. What's the greatest <laughs> – if you're watching on Spotify or on YouTube or whatever, you'll be able to see what we're talking about. But what's the greatest piece of advice Barry Alvarez ever gave you? Oh, man, this is funny. I always tell my kids this, sort of joking. Because it's it's hard to hear, but I think it's something that you have to hear, especially in, in high school, like or in, especially in college. He would always say nobody cares. Like we'd go into meeting rooms and he'd be like, Hey, how's your day going? And you'd like start breaking in this blah blah blah. You know, I had a test. And then you go, Nobody cares. And then everyone would laugh. But it was it was definitely a good message because in the end, the bottom of the message was like, when you're in this building, the only thing that matters is what you do between those white lines. Like, don't bring the baggage from outside mm -hmm. into here and let those distractions affect what happens at practice. Because at practice, your only job is to be the best version of yourself as a left tackle, if it was me, or a quarterback, or a running back. Um, and I think that was really important because, you know, especially as a freshman, like, you bring a lot of whining and crying into those practices, yeah. into those meetings. And he was, he was really, really good at letting you understand that the mission is 
the mission. The main thing is the main thing right here. And we're trying to win football games. And so when you're in this building, that should be your only focus. There should be no other things on your mind. Nobody cares. I see a future t-shirt for, for my website. <laughs> I love that. And I just imagine you going up to your kids like, yeah, good day at school. Yeah, nobody yeah. cares. Yeah, nobody cares. <laughs> you know? I'm, I'm but, sorry, nobody cares. <laughs> I love yourself. that. I love that. Hey, uh, I put out on Twitter for fans to have some questions for you. So uh, you want to go through some of these fan questions with yeah, me? Shoot, let's go. All right, here we go. Uh, let's start with uh, Mitchell on Twitter, Mitchell Ace says that, Joe, you've lost a bunch of weight since retiring from the NFL. Uh, did he ever feel overweight slash out of shape while playing with the Browns? And if he could have blocked for one quarterback he never had, um, for one QB he never had, who would that be? I'm guessing he's asking. Mm. Um, who would you have chosen? So, number one, did you ever yeah. feel overweight or out of shape? And then <laughs> if you could have blocked for any quarterback, who would that be? Yeah, I felt overweight my entire football career in college in the NFL. I was 250 pounds when I when I turned 18 and when I came into Wisconsin as a freshman, um, and I was up to 300 by my sophomore season. So I, I gained between July of my freshman year when I started training and the bowl game in December. I gained 35 pounds, not all good weight. And uh, so when you when you're a naturally smaller person and you have to just eat like crazy, like. Every day is Joey Chestnut at the uh, hot dog oh. eating contest. And you're walking out of um, every meal, like feeling like you just ate Thanksgiving. You definitely feel overweight. Um, <laughs> and I, I especially felt overweight when uh, the summer, uh, 4th of July, was always a fun time. We'd go up to my in-law's cabin up in northern Wisconsin uh, near Rice Lake Bloomer. And I'd eat this really good pizza and we'd drink a lot of Line and Kugel's beer. And, and then I didn't train as much as I probably should have. And I definitely felt out of shape at that time. But like during the season, you practice so much and so hard and you work out so much and so hard that even though you're a big, big human being, you're in really pretty good shape. Like I could, I'm not going to say I could run all day because we weren't runners. That's not what I do. But, you know, three hour practices twice a day at 310 pounds. I mean, you were really tired. You're gassed. But yeah. like I couldn't do that now. And I'm 255 pounds. So, so how much did you drop then from your highest in the NFL? Yeah, so my highest I played at was like 320, 325. Okay. Um, and so I'm, now I'm like 255, 260. So wow. it was uh, – if you're a math major out there, you'd be able to figure out what, what that subtraction is. Uh, but either way, I feel a lot better. And, and my big motivation was just getting healthier when I yeah. retired. And um, obviously eating better was a big part of it, not carrying all that weight um on your for your heart and your lungs and everything but also i had really bad knees still do um and the doctor told me like outside of a knee replacement there's nothing we can do for you uh so the best thing you can do is just lose the weight and it's going to make your joints feel a heck of a lot better and he was right wow yeah um all right so rob hernandez on twitter asks what were his fondest memories of the WIAA state track and field oh. meet in lacrosse and the atmosphere there? Mm. And how did being a three-sport athlete at Brookfield Central help you competitively down the road? So I love the atmosphere at the shot put yeah. pit. Um, what was that lacrosse? like? You know, as a shot putter, you're usually kind of like a sideshow, which is kind of fun. You kind of embrace that. It's sort of like being a lineman. We always called ourselves mushrooms uh, because if, if you know anything about mushrooms, we always said, you know, as linemen, they put us in a dark room, they yeah. shovel crap on us, and then they expect us to grow into these delicious delicacies. Uh, and so we're, we always consider ourselves mushrooms, right? Um, 
we were always the ones that got blamed when something went wrong. And then when something went right, the running back and the quarterback were always the one that got the interview after the game. So uh, <laughs> it was a little bit like shot putters, right? Nobody cares about shot putters. Yeah. And you're always, you don't even compete inside the stadium. A lot of times you just kind of go wander off behind the concession stand somewhere. <laughs> there's a shot put ring. Um, but in the cross at the state meet, it, it's a lot different. Like you have actually fans, you have mm -hmm. people that are passionate about the sport um all throughout the state that have watched and covered and um they're out there cheering at the right times and they're getting excited so it was an atmosphere that i was unfamiliar with um for the shot put and so that was really cool that was really special i won state my senior year which was really awesome it had been the culmination of um working on the shot put since i picked it up in seventh grade uh so that that was really special to me it was a lot of fun i had a lot of passion still do for track and field um, it was something I did in college for a couple seasons. I, uh, was runner up in the big 10, my sophomore year in college, uh, had the big 10 or had the Badger indoor record in the shot put for a little while. And I always had Olympic dreams. Yeah. Um, those were dashed by NFL injuries, but, um, <laughs> maybe someday I'll, I'll pick it back up. Maybe the discus and, uh, throw in some masters meets because I, I still, I love track. It's, it was always fun to me and it, it just kind of boils athletic competition down to the most simple of yeah. feats like who's faster who can throw farther like there's nothing else involved like right. let's just find out raw athletic talent and uh name a winner and i think that's part of the thing that i always loved about it hmm. uh, matthew on twitter asks how hard was the the decision to go fishing instead of going to the nfl draft i assume not very hard but still curious and then i have a follow-up to that too because how much football were you actually thinking that day when you're fishing? So how hard was it to make that decision? And how much were you actually thinking about the draft while you were out there fishing? Yeah, it was an easy decision for me. Uh, it took about two seconds because I'm like, oh, it's Saturday. Let me look at my calendar that doesn't <laughs> exist. Oh, yeah, I go fishing with my dad on Saturdays. That's fun. <laughs> Nothing has ever shown up that would be more important or more fun than that. And uh, I think the other side of it is I never had like dreams of being on stage at the draft. I know a lot of guys do have those dreams. Um, it was never part of anything that was important to me. Like for me, I always thought that the draft was an, uh, sort of uh, overhyped because not, there's no games played. I'm like, and I always kind of disliked the way I would see a lot of guys get drafted and then say like, my journey's over. Like, this is everything I've always dreamed of. And then they just sort of mail it in when they yeah. go and play football games because they've, they've already got drafted. They've made their millions of dollars. And then that was their goal. Like for me, my end goal was to have a great NFL career. It wasn't like where I was drafted. I really, obviously you want to be drafted higher from a money standpoint, but other than that, I didn't really care. I just wanted to go in a situation where I get an opportunity to go and play great football in the NFL. And so I was sort of anti-draft, uh, yeah. which is funny because now that's one of my, duties as an NFL analyst is to cover the draft. <laughs> and I was in Vegas for the draft last year and I was in Cleveland the year before covering it. And, and it's fun now. And they've made quite uh, a circus and, uh, atmosphere out of the entire NFL draft. And it's really cool being there. But as a player, I always thought that it sort of, it sent the wrong message if you were too excited about the draft, because yeah. like, that's just the beginning. That's just where you get to find out where to go to start the work. Right. And I I also disliked all the players who would say, like, how was the draft prep? And their answer was, oh, I've never worked harder in my life. Like, I've never been so committed. Like, I cut out alcohol and I'm eating clean. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, 
well, why didn't you do that when you were playing football and you guys are trying to win Big Ten championships? Like, that wasn't important enough for you to yeah. be disciplined and, like, treat your body the right way. But when money was on the line, all of a sudden, yeah, now now it's important. Now I'm going to really work hard. And before, I, I just wasn't working all that hard because my teammates just aren't important to me. So I think just everything around it, it was – not as important as going fishing with my dad. That was that's interesting. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I love how you describe that. Well, Saturday, well, I go fishing with my dad. So that's right. I guess that's what you that's do. What I'm doing. Right. Sunday, we, go to church. Saturday, <laughs> fishing with my dad. You've been kind of outspoken to uh, about the process of getting up to the NFL Combine as well. Why mm -hmm. is that? Is that overrated in your opinion, or how do you feel about the process of just you know season's done mm -hmm. and that's all you do you train yeah. for like these specific events yeah. and then you get drafted yeah i think that the specific events they have their place in evaluating talent but sometimes i think because the college season ends and then you've got this three four months before the draft there's no extra film that's getting put out there and so because of recency bias a lot of teams and certainly a lot of fans especially they put too much weight into the numbers that you put up at the combine or at your pro day um when what should matter is the film that you put out there for the last three or four years at whatever college you were at because that's football like yeah. that is what's important is how you are as a football player not necessarily how you run in the 40 or how long your arms are or how big your hands are um and i think that stuff gets overblown and I know that a lot of teams try their best to not be so biased by those numbers and the recency bias, but you see it every year. You saw it this year. Um, God bless Trent Balky, who's the GM of the Jacksonville Jaguars, but he drafted. Um, I think it's Trayvon Walker. I can't remember. I haven't uh, brushed up on my draft stuff That's yet. That's all right. Um, the Jaguars' first pick overall this past year um, was a, basically a project defensive end because he was a big guy. He was super fast and athletic. But when you turn on the tape, he didn't stand out versus anybody else. And then meanwhile, you got this guy, Aiden Hutchinson, who was drafted by the, the Detroit Lions, number two overall, who should have gone number one, in my opinion, was a fantastic football player. And, and he had great numbers as well at the Combine and at his pro day. Um, but it wasn't something that jumped off the page like um, – Trayvon Walker's did. And mm -hmm. so Trayvon should have been kind of like a mid first round pick, a little bit of a project, not really a pass rusher. Um, not doesn't have a lot of pass rush moves. Didn't get a lot of sacks, not a lot of production. He went number one overall because he performed really well at the combine. And so I, I think, you know, he, he might turn out to be a great player, but there's a lot more risk when you're trying to project a guy that puts up good numbers in shorts and a t-shirt versus a guy who puts up good numbers when he's wearing shoulder pads and a helmet. Yeah. Uh, all right. A couple of final questions for you, Joe. And uh, once again, I do appreciate uh, the time here today. So this is from Chuck on Twitter. He says, well, going to Madison, what was your favorite bar to go to? Mm. Ooh, there's a lot of them. Wando's <laughs> was, uh, was one I went to a lot. Um, in the summer, I want to say there was uh, like 50 cent beer and like dollar burgers and like you get half price apps or something like that and tuesday that's, was all you can dangerous. eat bacon yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean there was always a good special there uh the kk was obviously uh, always a big hangout for us especially after games uh and then state street brats those are probably my my three favorite that i went to the most yeah having a beer out on the terrace is a pretty pretty dang thing when it's yes. sunny for like the first time in months yes. 
Are, are we considering that a bar? Because I, I don't know. I, I love so. the I mean, everyone loves the terrace, and yeah. that's the cool thing about the terrace is you'll see twenty-one-year-old college kids, and you'll yeah. see like eighty-one-year-old grandparents, <laughs> and they love it just as much. And you'll see like little kids playing by the water. Yeah, like it's it's awesome. kind of a. It's, mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that too. Um, but now you probably, what's your favorite? Oh, this is my question. What is your favorite item uh, on the menu at Mission Barbecue on the east side of Madison? Yeah, the, the best item in my opinion is the moist brisket. If you're a brisket fan, they do it better than anybody else probably in the entire country. And I've eaten at all the, the best barbecue <laughs> places in the country. That's the best thing about traveling with the NFL and now with NFL Network is you go to these great cities that have really good food. And it's really hard to not turn back into the 300-pound offensive lineman, Joe Thomas, <laughs> what I'm eating the way I do during the season. Uh, but our moist brisket is tops in the world. They smoke it over red oak. Um, they do, you know, 12 to 16 hours overnight in their smokers, and it comes out. It's just delightful. Everything about it is fantastic. Um, the KC sauce that you can put on it, which is my favorite, it's got a little bit of heat to it. So just a little bit of sauce with that brisket is awesome. Otherwise, you can just eat it uh, without any sauce. It's fantastic. A little side of cold slaw is unbelievable. Their beans, uh, their green beans are really good. They put little bacon bits in them, but also their um, regular uh, baked beans come yeah. with um, brisket like the fatty brisket that's been smoked yeah. that they put in there. So a lot of good sides of that brisket. There's nothing better than some brisket and you just, it just mm. melts in your mouth and you're oh, like, just I give love me it. more. Can't get, I can't get enough of it. That's the problem. I, I go until I get sick <laughs> and then I walk out of there and feel like I died. Oh, that's awesome. Joe, thank you so much uh, for your time. If you just hold on a little bit, I'll wrap up this podcast. Um, but thank you so much for your time at talking some football, talking some barbecue all of it. The, the Barry Alvarez stuff was awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, John. All right, there you go. That is Joe Thomas. What an awesome podcast with Joe. Um, go check out Mission Barbecue. I, I want to get that moist brisket now. Uh, also, go check out Ian's Pizza. I got the brisket and tot uh, and all, of course, the classic macaroni and cheese slices. Me and Julio, we were just there. Thank you to everyone, once again, who showed up at um, the listener party, the podcast party, raising a lot of money for Journey Mental Health Center of Madison. And I'll have uh, more like videos of that posting on social media soon. Um, so go check out me and Julio as well, johncastpodcast.com, all the latest stuff, subscribe to the newsletter, uh, like, subscribe on YouTube, uh, all the stuff, reviews, you know, there's too many things to say about podcasts nowadays. So just do all the things if you'd like. If you don't like to do those things, then don't rate and review. But if you do, thank you so much for doing so. Also, stay tuned. I've got tickets to the American Family Insurance Championship in Madison I'll be giving away. In fact, in fact, if you've been watching this podcast on Spotify or YouTube, let's just say you might have figured out a way to win tickets. That's all I'm going to say. But there are tickets available. I'll be giving those away to um, uh, uh, two per week until the tournament starts at University Ridge. All right. Thanks for listening. That's enough of me, of uh, of this. Thanks for listening to the uh, John Cast podcast.